That's, uh, thank you for reading that. This is, this is a, a, a beautiful scripture, a beautiful passage, a, a hard passage um, at, towards the end of John's gospel. Uh, and as we're in a little short series called Finding Faith, um, we're, we're exploring uh, the, these kinds of uh, passages, these kinds of ideas. Um, last week, we uh, kind of tried to ask, what is, what is the journey of finding faith? What, what, is, what is that about? Uh, and today, I want to look at uh, Thomas, and I want to ask some questions about the subject of doubt. And uh, my mic feels a little hot, a little, little loud, maybe turn it down a little bit. Um, and so I, I want to invite you into that. And this is, this is part, of the, uh, part of the journey with Jesus, is navigating these kinds of issues, faith and doubt. And next week, we're going to be looking at, at certainty. And what do, what do these, what do these things, how do they play together? And how do we, uh, how do we navigate them? Um, and may, you know, we want to recognize that maybe you're here and you've got some questions about who Jesus is. You've got some questions about the, the message of the Bible. Uh, you got some real doubts uh, that, that you're facing. And if that's true, uh, boy, am I, I'm, I'm really glad that you're, uh, you're here today. And so let's take a look at what happens between uh, Thomas and, and Jesus here in John, John chapter 20. Uh, first, the, the, the presence of doubt. Um, that's the first point. I know normally it's on the screen. It's not today. The, the, the num- point number one, the presence of doubt. Um, if you look at verses 24 and 25 there of this chapter, you, you see that, that Thomas had some problems with the disciples' story. So in verse 19, as you heard Brandy read that, we, we get the account of Jesus showing up uh, to, to, the, uh, to the disciples, and he shows up the first day of the week, the doors were locked, he comes in, stood among them, he says to them, peace be with you, and it changes everything. And the disciples uh, experience this risen Christ, and they are—they um, are, you know—he he gives them the Holy Spirit, uh, and there's this incredible interaction between the disciples and Jesus. But then you get to verse 24, and you find out uh, that one of them wasn't there. Uh, that Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So. As you would totally expect, the other disciples were like, man, do we have something to tell you? You're not going to believe this. We saw him. We saw, we saw the Lord. And Thomas hears their comments, and he responds back, I don't think so. <laughs> he says, unless I, he starts off by saying, see the hands, uh, see in the hands the mark of the nails. And then he says, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. And so, you know, he's talking about the wounds that Jesus endured, the the nails in his hands, the sword that went into his side. And as Thomas hears his fellow disciples say, we saw Jesus and he's alive. His response is there's like, I don't buy it. And he goes on to say, unless I put my hands in the unless that happens, I, I will never believe. Thomas doubts that Jesus is risen. This, this, this word doubt, you know, it, 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 uh, the origin of that word, it, what it means is double-minded. So if, if you have doubt, it means you, you, have, you, have, double, you have a double mind. You, you are experiencing some, a moment where something that you believe is, is in question. It seems like it's not true. 
you have competing ideas going on uh, in, in your mind. And Thomas, uh, as you might know, has been dubbed Doubting Thomas. He's been known as Doubting Thomas uh, ever since John uh, wrote his gospel. It's been the, the tag that's been put, uh, put on him. And I think that this idea of being double-minded uh, probably makes sense. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He'd walked all these years. He'd been with Jesus. He'd listened to Jesus. He was in his presence. And yet, it's just hard for him to believe that Jesus is risen. He goes so far to say, unless this happens, I will never believe. I've got these legitimate doubts, and I don't think I'll ever get over them. Can you relate? You know, we live in a culture, in a cultural moment, uh, that has been formed by the presence of doubt. Uh, there's a, a philosopher who worked at uh, uh, University of Southern California at USC. Uh, he, he, was, he was a Christian and a kind of a prolific writer, especially on spiritual formation. His name is Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard said this, we live in a culture that has, for centuries now, cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. He says, you can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. And he's saying, so that's, that, that's the way our culture sees things, is like, you can have the dumbest position in the world as long as you admit you don't really know anything. You, you, you can be as dumb as a cabbage, as he says, as long as doubt is part of the mix. But the second that you, you, you have some sort of confidence or you know, that you think you have the truth, our culture uh, says you're naive. Our culture shoves that aside, and Dallas Willard says this has been cultivated for centuries now. The impact uh, is significant, but as a Christian church, uh, it would be appropriate for us to recognize that one of the impacts of this culture has been what some have referred to as the, the great deconstruction. And that is this, this uh, pretty common experience right now in our culture of, of Christians deconstructing their faith. That, that's, that's become the term that has been used uh, to, to describe this process. Um, and maybe you've heard of some of the names, Joshua Harris. Uh, Joshua Harris was a, 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 an author, a, a youth pastor, and then a lead pastor in the 90s and the 2000s, um, and he had a, um, a very, very public uh, deconstruction uh, of his faith where he uh, now uh, no longer identifies himself as, as a Christian. Uh, he wrote some of the biggest books uh, of the, uh, the, late, the late 90s, early 2000s that had a huge impact on Christian culture. And then he goes through this, uh, this journey of doubt and he comes out uh, deconstructed. He comes out with the conclusion that he's, he's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe it anymore. Uh, there were two guys, Rhett and Link, uh, the YouTubers, uh, had a really big footprint in some parts of the Christian world. And a couple years ago, they, they went through the process and they uh, kind of shared their whole journey on, on their podcast of how it is that they got to the place, you know, they worked for, I think it was for Crew, and, um, you know, they worked as, that's a, a Christian organization, and they had invested years and years of their life uh, helping other people find Jesus, and then they both uh, go through this season of doubt and end up uh, concluding that they are no longer Christians, that they can't, they can't believe any of this stuff. And there's a number of other kind of what you might consider famous ones. But my guess is that you are probably more familiar with someone that you know going through this. A friend, 
a friend from high school, one of your children, one of your parents, maybe your spouse, maybe yourself. It's a very common journey in our current cultural moment. What one author described deconstruction like this. He said, think of three boxes. He said, the first box is the box of order. The second box is the box of disorder. And the third box is the box of reorder. And he said, think about that first box, that box of order. And what what you have there is this, generally, it's the way that you've been raised. And that first box of order gives you an explanation for how things are. It gives you a sense of what reality means. It often gives you a sense of what God means and who God is. And it's, uh, it gives us a level of comfort. It helps us make things work. It's like, oh, this is how the world works. And in that first box, we have this sense of order. This author says, the problem though, is that life usually does not leave box one alone. Usually life comes crashing in to box one. And you have your sense of order and you have your sense of the way that things are. And often it's suffering, but it's not always suffering. But something comes smashing into that first box and it's the second box. It's the second box of of disorder. And you look around and you realize that, oh my goodness, my whole sense of how things work, my whole sense of who God is, my whole sense of what reality, it's all being messed up. And so when it's suffering, it's often something along the lines of, I thought God was love, and now he's allowed this into my life. If God was really in control, or if God really loved me, he would never let this happen. And it begins this kind of a domino effect in your life where you end up in box two, which is the box of disorder. And you look around and you say, nothing makes sense anymore. I'm questioning everything. Everything feels slippery. Everything feels foggy. And that author says, and then in that state, you are often, you know, it's it's a painful place to be. And as you experience that box of disorder, you naturally want to find order again. And so you want to get to the third box. You want to get to the box that he calls reorder, to, to kind of find beliefs that will allow you to explain the world that you now are living in find some way of making sense of it all. So order, and then disorder comes, and then you have this longing for reorder. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, It's the cultural moment that we are in. Depending on your age, the subject could be different. Uh, Suffering is one of the common causes. Sexuality and sexual ethics is often one of the causes. But these things come in, and they, they, they mess with the order that we were given. The, the order that we understood, this, this, sometimes this nice, neat world and disorder, suffering, confusion comes in and we end up feeling like we're in a fog, the longing to find some sort of order again, to find reorder. And one, this author is saying, like, it's a helpful way to think about this deconstruction thing, that some sort of disorder has crashed into the orderly world. And now people are saying, what do I do? I can't stay in this state. This is a mess. Everything feels broken. Everything feels foggy. And they're trying to find their way out. Well, it's been brewing in various forms for a really long time. And postmodernism, maybe you're familiar with that term, but postmodernism had a big impact 
on this way of thinking. Uh, Postmodernism, ironically, is now considered dead. Uh, There's actually a museum, uh, I I think it was about 10 years ago, uh, a museum over in England had the very first retrospective on postmodernism, and they declared postmodernism dead. They gave it only about a 20-year lifespan. But in the year, about 10 years ago, they said postmodernism is dead. Like, in other words, it, it, it didn't work. But if you think about what postmodernism is or what it was, the impact that it had, um, a helpful way to think about postmodernism is that it was basically approaching things and saying that there is no one meaning, that nothing is absolutely true, that that you can have your truth claim, but that's just your truth claim. Nothing, you know, everything is equally valid. Whatever your opinion is and whatever this person's opinion is, they can be opposites, but they can both be their truth. And that, that kind of thinking began to ooze and spread throughout our culture at a rapid, rapid rate. And some of the desires that were associated with postmodernism were actually good. One of the desires that was associated with postmodernism was that, you know what people do? People in power use truth claims to oppress other people. That's what they do. And postmodernism will steal that power because now their truth claims are not absolute anymore. And they can't use their truth claims to oppress the poor or to oppress other races or to oppress other demographics. And so there was this sense of like, we can level the world. We, we can stop some of this injustice. We can stop some of this inequity by, by leveling truth not letting the people in power use truth to hold others down. But over time, something something interesting happened. Postmodernism was this, in a sense, this tearing down. You say that's true. Well, I say this is true. Who's to say? Who's to say? And so what happened was things started to get torn down. Institutions started to get torn down. And some of the things that got torn down were good things to get torn down. But here's what happened. Postmodernism didn't know where to stop. And it just kept tearing things down. And it kept destroying and, 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 uh, and, and uh, deconstructing everything. And by the end, no, no one knew what to do about anything. No, no one knew how to, how to define truth at all. It, it, in a sense, it deprivileged every position. And then it's all we had was mush. You know, what one author said, we thought that postmodernism would lead to, to, to liberty. We thought it would be liberating. And guess what? It was the exact opposite. It just led to intense amount of confusion. It, meant, it led to this world in which you actually couldn't stop oppression because who are you to say that oppression's wrong? You see, it just kept tearing everything down. And if you tear everything down, then there's nothing. There literally is nothing. There's no truth left to stand on. And that influence of postmodernism, we we can say that it's dead. Here's the problem. Every person in this room has been deeply formed by postmodernity. Either you were trained in it or the teachers that taught you we're trained in it, and it has uh, leaked its way into our society. And, and the problem is that the philosophers can say, oh, the no truth approach didn't work. They, they can say that, 
but it's already been released. It's already out there. It's already soaking in our culture. And no one really knows what it's going to do for modern society. Because the idea that all truth is relative, it's kind of embedded now. And so the philosophers are saying, oh, we got to change course. They've already said that. They already said postmodernity's dead. But guess what most people on the street think? All truth is relative. All truth claims are equal. Who are you to say that that is true? And so that is the culture in which we live. That is uh, this, this, this sense that has fostered doubt. And it's, you know, postmodernity was around in the second half of the 20th century, but at the beginning of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton said, the new rebel is a skeptic. He, he says that, that, you know, the guy who doubts everything, boy, like that's, that's the new, that's the, that, that's the new way to go about it. That's the new way to think about it. So it's been around for a really long time. And this sense of doubt everything, challenge everything, how do you know anything could be right? That has been part of our culture for a really long time, and it's kind of embedded in the cultural consciousness. Doubt is here. Doubt is present. Well, there's a problem with doubt. A lot of people experience doubt on their faith journey. Uh, some do want to get away from Christianity. I think maybe you've met some people like that. Their, 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 their pursuit of, of, of wrestling with their doubts is to get away from it. They don't want more to do with Jesus. They want less to do with Jesus. But I know from personal experience that there are a lot of others that are not trying to run away from Jesus. They're actually trying to find the real Jesus. They're actually confused. They're disoriented. They're looking around at maybe at the American church. Maybe they're looking around at Christians that they grew up with or Christians that they know, and they're thinking, this cannot be it. This cannot be what Jesus called us to be. You, 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 you say love your enemies, but then look at how you talk about other people. You say you love the truth, but then look at how you interact with, 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 other, with other truth claims. You're not curious. You don't ask any questions. You're judgmental. And, and so there's this sense where it's like that orderly box, it doesn't taste so good anymore. They've started to experience a broader world and they're saying, you don't seem to be living consistently with the stuff that you say you believe. And so they're, in a sense, deconstructing, but they're deconstructing trying to say, there's gotta be more to this Jesus than that. There's gotta be more to Jesus than just Sunday mornings where you come and sing some songs and listen to a guy talk for a while. It's gotta be more than that. It's gotta be more than just reading your Bible for six minutes on a weekday morning. There's gotta be more to it than that. And there, there's a lot of people on their experience of doubt in their faith journey, they're actually really fighting hard to say, I, I, I think there's more. That journey is a delicate one because questions are so good and questions are so powerful. And like most powerful things, they can be quite destructive. Remember those three boxes, order, disorder, reorder? Not everyone, but many who are wrestling with doubt are very hopeful to find some reorder. They, they are actually looking for some answers. It might feel good for a season of time to say nothing's true. It might feel good for a little while to say I have no, you know, no, no claims on, my, on me. It might feel good for a little while, but just like post-modernity, you eventually realize this, this is not working. The world is not working. And I would say, just as an example, look, look around. 
There's a lot of evidence that the world is not working. Our, our, our world does not know how to, how to counsel people. It doesn't know how to guide people. Our, 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 our adults are afraid to tell our children what, what is true. And, and you can see why. This is, it's permeated our culture. And so you might be in that phase right now where you're like, oh, this freedom is so great. I love not having any truth claims. I love everything just kind of being up in the air. That has a shelf life. It has a shelf life and it runs out of gas. And my experience is a lot of people find themselves trying to find reorder. They want to land somewhere. G.K. Chesterton said, the mind is like the mouth. You open it to close it on something. You don't walk around with your mouth open all the time. You open to eat food and then you close your mouth and you chew it up. You open your mind to ask good questions, but then you close your mind on things. You actually come to some conclusions. You actually find some truths. And so that, that, that journey of doubt, that journey of deconstruction, it has a, it has a shelf life where people are looking for some sense of order, some way to make sense of the world. So what I want to encourage you is that you aim your questions in the right direction. I want you to consider where you're looking for answers. In other words, if you're going to doubt your beliefs, you also need to doubt your doubts. You need to wrestle with the things that have become the, the, the ideas that now own you or the ideas that have now uh, controlled how you think. And the reason you need to doubt your doubts is because you are not as independent as you think you are. Your doubts are not just your doubts. You know, everybody thinks of themselves as this island where they're independent and they have all of these independent thoughts and they're so unique. And it's like, man, just talk to a sociologist. Sociologists look at our culture and they're like, we are a herd. This is herd mentality. Everybody, I mean, there's some early adopters for sure, but everybody just, it's, it's, we're just all moving towards the same things. Uh, a few years ago, Dr. Pepper had a commercial and, and, and their shirts had all of these statements, but they were all things like, I am unique, I am a one of a kind, whatever. They were all burgundy shirts with the same font. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's about it. You're running around thinking you're so unique while everybody else is doing the same thing you're doing. I had a friend who lived in a rural area, uh, this is probably about 10 or 15 years ago, and he got real into the hipster thing. Started dressing like a hipster, you know what I'm saying? There might be a hipster in here, uh, you know, flannel, thick-rimmed glasses, boots, all, all the stuff. And in his little rural town, he, you know, kind of was, it was kind of a unique thing. Well, he and his wife went on vacation to Nashville, and he got to Nashville, and he looked like everyone in Nashville, everybody. And so we think we're so unique, but boy, we, we are not as unique as we think. We're not as independent as we think. And let me give you two ways that you're influenced. First is, a, is cultural influence. The questions, you know, the current questions of the day. What, 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 are the, what are the hot questions today? And think about Thomas here in John 20. Thomas and all the Jewish reasons to doubt the Messiah. There are so many reasons to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. And Thomas, who was a Jew, had all of those questions and all of those doubts swirling around him. You know, it was the Jews that were the most proactive in crucifying Jesus. 
They looked at Jesus and they said, there's no way. This guy is a, it's hypocrisy. This is heresy. Look at the Old Testament. He can't be that guy. There were all kinds of reasons to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus would, would come back from the dead, all of these things. And Thomas is just one of the Jews, one of the many Jews that had those kinds of questions swirling around. In the first century, those questions made all the sense in the world. Those questions were more logical than the truth. Well, here we are in the year 2023, and it's true for us too. We're in a cultural moment where there are questions about Christianity that make more sense than the truth about Christianity because of the cultural moment that we are in. You know, have you noticed that a lot of the current deconstruction stories sound the same? They're wrestling with the same questions. And if you pay attention, like those questions are not the questions that people were wrestling with 100 years ago. There's a, there's a herd mentality to the way that we doubt. Maybe not all of our doubts, but many of our doubts are kind of herd mentality doubts. Uh, in the book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, um, I'm listening to that on audiobook, and it's this, uh, this account of a, a Presbyterian pastor who's older and nearing the end of his life, and he's like leaving his last word to his, his young, young son. And at one point in time, he's talking to his son about faith and doubt. And, and he says to his son, now look, I'm not saying never doubt and never question. The Lord gave you a mind so that you would make honest use of it. So he's saying, I'm not saying don't ever question things. That's, that's, there's an appropriateness to that. What I am saying is you must be sure that the doubts and the questions are your own not, so to speak, the mustache and the walking stick that happened to be the fashion at that particular moment. And he's just simply saying, like, look at the pictures of people over the course of time. You know, just facial hair, it's, I mean, it's such a good example, isn't it? It's like, you know, you go back and at one point in time, mustaches were cool. And then like in the 90s, goatees were cool. And then now, beards are cool. And Kind of right now, mustaches are becoming cool again. And it's like, there's this, this cultural movement and you're like, oh yeah, the goatee. I remember when I had a goatee. I did that for a while. Now, if you have a goatee today, good for you. You're, you're, you're marching to the beat of your own drum. But, but, but that, was, that, that was the thing for a little while. Hairstyles, get out a yearbook. You don't need to read the date on the front, do you? You don't need to read the date on the front. Get out a yearbook and look at the pictures and you'll be like, oh, this yearbook's from the 60s. Right? I mean, th th this is how it goes. And so this father in the book Gilead is simply saying to his son, as you navigate your doubts, doubt your doubts. Are they just the mustache and the walking stick of this moment? Is that what you're actually doing? Because if that's the case, then you might be doubting something that's not your doubt. It's just the culture's doubt. And that's lazy. Work hard to, to doubt your doubts. Make sure you're not just feeling the cultural pressure to conform to what makes sense to the world around you. Paul says this in Romans 12. In Romans 12, he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the word of God, by letting God be at work in you. And so right now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to harp on one single thing, but right now the idea of sexuality and gender are just, they are front and center in our culture. And as the people of God, man, do we want to engage those things with kindness and tenderness and understanding, and we want to be good listeners, and we want to recognize that that is super complicated for people. That is a very hard journey. 
But in some ways, that is the cultural mustache and walking stick of this moment. Those were not the challenges that people were facing 100 years ago. And it's likely they will not be the challenges that we're facing if we were to be around 100 years from now. The challenges change with time. One way to think about this is that every culture is made by people. Okay, So if that's true, and it is true, here's, here's what we take away from that. If culture is made by people, then what's true of people? People are made in the image of God. And since people are made in the image of God, every single culture is going to have aspects of that culture that align and reflect God's good design. But what else is true of people? People are also broken by sin. And so if that's true, and people are the ones who make culture, then culture will, it will have parts that align with God's good design, but every single culture is also going to have parts that are contrary to God's good design. See, so when, when, when the Bible comes into a culture, when the message of the gospel comes into a culture, there are things about that culture that the Bible is going to affirm, and there are things about that culture that the Bible is going to confront that the Bible is going to step on the toes of that culture. And it's been happening all along the way. The, the Bible comes in and affirms the good things and calls out the distortions. Uh, you know, some examples right now. If, 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 if we were to apply it to our current culture, our culture loves second chances, loves forgiveness, Loves this idea of, of like not holding grudges and, and it honors that and recognizes that as a good thing. Our, our culture also would, would, would say that you know, to love your enemy is, is a good thing that stands in, in stark contrast and in, to, 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 you know, to, to other options and it's, it's a good thing. Hospitality, service. Our, our, our culture appreciates those ideas and the Bible loves those ideas. So the Bible comes into our culture and says, yes, yes, do more of that. That's great and good. But then sexuality, greed, laziness, workaholic, yeah, the, 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 those dynamics that are loud and in charge in our culture, the Bible comes in and, and stands against those and, and confronts those. And that's what the Bible does in every culture. And if you change cultures, the list changes. Here's a real quick example that we've used before. You know, culture is getting more flat across the globe, but just generally speaking, if you come to the West here in America and you get, and you're like, oh man, I, I love a God who forgives. That is so great. That aligns with my idea of a deity. Like I love a God who forgives, but I can't stand a God who judges. I, I cannot put up with a God who, 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 who would uh, you know, have, have uh, wrath or, or judgment. Well, if you get on a plane and you fly over to Japan and you land, you land in Okinawa and you get off and you talk to a, 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 a Japanese person, th- their culture would have the exact opposite issues. Their culture would say, oh, a, a deity that judges? That's what we expect. We expect authority. We expect strength. We expect clarity. We expect our deities to have. Of, <clears throat> we expect our deities to have those kinds of uh, strong opinions. But to forgive, that's weak. To forgive, no deity would do that. You see, 
on the globe right now. You can just get on a plane and find cultures that have wildly different views of God. And guess what? God is both. He is one who forgives and he is one who has standards. But in each of those cultures, they stand in contrast. There's part of it that they like and there's part of it that they don't. And as we are able to remind ourselves that culture is not ultimate, that as the people of God, we believe the word of God is ultimate, then it allows us to, to, to have our toes stepped on, for us to, to doubt our doubts, for us to wrestle with what the culture wants to conform us into and actually let God do the work of transforming us. One author said, you might not need to deconstruct your beliefs, you might need to deconstruct your culture. Because a lot of what's happened is that culture has gotten stuck to Jesus. There's a whole lot of cultural ideas that have gotten stuck to Jesus. And I, I do not have time to go through this. But in, in the 50s, in the 40s and the 50s, there were 19, 1940s and 1950s, there was a, a, a movement that ended up taking, taking three ideas and kind of um, mushing them together. And one was being an American, one was capitalism, and the other one was being a Christian. And those three ideas of being an American, being a capitalist, and being a Christian, I'm not saying that one person had the intention of doing this, but those three things just became like, like merged together. Because maybe you know this, but do you know when we put the phrase, in God we trust, on our money? In the 1950s. Do you know when we added the phrase about one nation under God to our Pledge of Allegiance? The 1950s. The, the, the 1950s, not the 1850s, not the 1750s, the 1950s. And there was this sense in which we were, you know, had these, these, these world wars. And if you think of those three things, being an American, being a capitalist, being a Christian, what's the other option? Being an atheist, being a socialist, being a foreigner. And that kind of mentality began to, to kind of soak into the bones. I don't think one person said, let's do this. Let's put these three together and let's put these three together. It's just the oxygen we believe it, we, that we were breathing. And that has consequences. And all of a sudden you begin to have a Jesus that looks like an American capitalist. And you say, whoa, 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 is that on the pages of the Bible? That, that's not on the pages of the Bible. Heaven doesn't sound real capitalist to me. I mean, I'm fine with capitalism, but I, I don't know that heaven's going to be very capitalistic. But see how culture just kind of glued itself to Jesus? And some of the questions that you might be wrestling with are in that category where you've got to say, whoa, 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 there's a whole bunch of cultural baggage that's gotten tied to Jesus that might not be true of Jesus. And this is important for you individually to work through. Because when your friends have questions about Jesus or your friends say they don't believe in Jesus, a really good question to ask them is, tell me about the Jesus you don't believe in because I might not believe in him either. Because I don't believe in an American capitalist Jesus. I believe in Jesus who is the son of God, who is the risen Christ, who is the long-awaited Messiah, who is king of the world. You might not need to deconstruct your beliefs. You might need to deconstruct your culture. So the first thing is cultural influence. The second thing that influences us is spiritual. Satan, 
Satan wants your doubts to destroy you. He definitely wants your doubts to move you, uh, to move you away from Jesus. Satan loves to distort, to destroy, to deconstruct. You know, right off the bat in the Garden of Eden, how does he start his, 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 uh, his first words? Hey, did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? You see that subtle undermining? And then sometimes it's not so subtle. But the Bible is wide open about the fact that our battle is not just against the physical world, it's against the spiritual world. So in your journey of asking questions, which again, God gave you a mind, it's good to ask questions. But in your process of asking questions, just be aware, there's a cultural influence, there's kind of the questions of the day, and then there's a spiritual influence. We have an enemy who wants to destroy you. He wants your questions to turn dangerous, to turn violent, to turn destructive. So whether you're following along or not, this is point three, last point, the possibility of doubt. Go back to John chapter 20 here, and I want to show you three quick things as we close. So uh, our guy Thomas here has got all these doubts, and he says, like the last words of verse uh, 25 are, I will never believe. Unless that stuff happens, I will never believe. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, now, now catch what happens here. I want to show you three things. First, Thomas was still with the followers of Jesus. Thomas is still with them. John tells us crystal clear, eight days later, eight days, the news was spreading all over that Jesus had risen. Eight days is a long time to be sitting in doubt in that moment in history. Now you might say, man, eight days, I've been in this for eight months. I've been in this for eight years. I've been in this for 18 years. Maybe your journey with doubt has been long, but remember the intensity of this moment. And for eight days, Thomas has been wondering whether or not this is true. Says, I I can't comprehend it. I can't get there. But look at where he is. He is still with the people of God. Thomas is still in community. Look, when you experience doubt, don't run from the people of God. Don't run from the people of God. This happens way too much. My dad was a pastor for a really long time, and my dad always said that that the, the greatest heartache that he had was that when people were in their worst situations, that's when they ran the furthest from the church. And you know, look, look maybe, you can, maybe you can come up with the reasons why that makes sense, but I'm saying to you today, don't do it. Don't, don't run from the people of God when you're facing your doubts. Stick with them. Stay present. Be part of that community. Now, maybe you say, well, the reason I'm not part of that community is because they've contributed to the problem. Okay, well, so first thing I want you to see is that Thomas is still with the followers of Jesus. Number two, I want you to see Jesus's kindness and Jesus's clarity. Look at how, Thomas, or look at how Jesus engages Thomas's doubts. Thomas wasn't present the first time. He says, I doubt, I doubt this happened. Unless I see it, unless I touch it, I will never believe. Jesus shows up, shows up to Thomas, and he says, here, Thomas, you wanted to touch me? Come here. Come, come, come touch me. See me? 
I'm, I'm right here. And then he says, stop disbelieving. Stop disbelieving and believe. Do, do, do you see what Jesus does? This is this beautiful, perfect balance. On the one hand, Jesus does not show up and say to Thomas, how dare you doubt? How dare you ask questions? No, he says, come, come here. Come over here. You want to touch me? Like, go, go ahead and, and touch me. And then on the other hand, he says, but stop doubting. Like you, can, you can actually believe this, Thomas. Jesus is gentle and kind and gracious with Thomas because Jesus is gentle and kind and gracious with doubters. It's almost like Jesus is looking at Thomas and saying, okay, if that didn't help, you want to try this? If that didn't help, you want to try this? Like, what, 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 are, what are ways that we can interact here? I, it's me. I'm alive. I'm here. And then he says, you can stop doubting. Jesus is, he's kind and gracious to doubters, but he's also committed to the truth. You know, God refuses to let you acquiesce to your doubts. He doesn't just sit there and say, no, 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 it's fine. If you want to doubt, you go ahead and doubt. Just, you know, that's all there is to it. I know there's no real truth claims. Just, you know, wander in the dark. No, God doesn't say that at all. He meets you with grace and kindness, but he also meets with you with clarity and truth. You know why this balance is important? It's not only because, you know, I mean, a lot of you might be struggling with doubts and you've gone back and forth with yourself between, you know, just, I give up, I'm giving into my doubts, I quit, I'm over, I'm over this stuff, I don't know what's true, I'm not trying anymore. But giving into them, that, that's part of the journey. I understand that might be somewhere where you're at. See, we have a secular culture that makes doubt into a virtue, but we have a traditional culture in which doubt is out of the question. I grew up a little bit like that. We don't really ask questions about the Bible. We don't really ask questions about God. So you have a secular culture that makes doubt into a virtue. You have a traditional culture that makes doubt out of the question. And then you have God coming along and saying, here's, you know, come. There's a gentleness with those who doubt. And yet, he never accepts that as a place where you can live. I want our church to be a place of this kind of balance. I hope you do too. Because churches in which it's unsafe to doubt, they actually create skeptics. Because as you're growing up, you, you're not allowed to ask your questions, which means you never get any answers. And the end result of that is tragic. You never get to grapple with helpful answers. And then, for example, you go off to college and you have a professor who's more than ready to give you answers. And you've never grappled with them because you weren't allowed to ask. That's a recipe for disaster. But in churches where doubt is seen as the right place to stay, guess what? They never get answers either because they don't think there are answers. But what if we could be a place where questions were welcomed, where doubt was treated with kindness and grace, and at the same time, we actually believe that the message of the gospel is true and it's something you can sink your teeth into and believe with your whole heart. We, we want to reflect Jesus' kindness and Jesus' clarity, truth and grace. So first, Thomas is still with the followers of Jesus. Second, check out Jesus' kindness and clarity. And then third, check out Thomas' declaration. Look at what he says. Jesus says, hey, I'm here. 
You want to put your hands in my, in my scars? Go ahead. The indication is Thomas doesn't do that at all. Thomas doesn't touch Jesus at all. It says that Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas's response to Jesus, he's like, actually, I don't need empirical evidence. I, I, don't, I don't need what I thought I needed. At the, end of verse 25, uh, at the end of verse 25, he says, I won't believe unless I touch your scars. And by the end of this text, he's believing without touching the scars. He had an interaction with Jesus. He saw him. He saw him for who he was. And might I suggest this? He saw Jesus, the Jesus of the cross. What he saw was the love of Jesus revealed in his wounds. He saw Jesus with scars, and he saw Jesus alive, and he recognized that the message of the gospel was the truest true. And this is exactly the story of the gospel, that Jesus went to the cross, and by his wounds, we are healed. But he went to the grave and didn't stay dead. So he was wounded for us, but then he rose again and won for us life eternal. And when Thomas sees the wounds, when he sees the Jesus of the cross is alive, he immediately declares, my Lord and my God. This gets intensely personal, and nobody else was talking like that. Thomas sees Jesus, the Jesus of the cross, and it gets intensely personal, and he declares his faith in Christ. Jesus came into that room and met him right where he was out, where, where he is at, his doubts and all. And Jesus invites you tenderly, with all your questions, with all your doubts, in this confusing cultural moment, to come and see the real him. The truth about who he is and what his wounds show us he has done for us. He wants you to realize that he is all that he said he was. He is what your heart has been looking for your whole life, whether you know it or not. He's big enough to handle your doubts. He's big enough to handle your questions. He treats you with graciousness and kindness, and yet he wants you to see the truth about him. Check out the real Jesus, not some culturally reproduced Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Come and meet him. Come and see him. Recognize that the wounds heals. That's that's the journey, is that Jesus went to the cross to make you new, to make you whole, to make you alive. And we come to this table every Sunday. This bread represents his body, broken for us. The cup represents his blood, spilled for us. It's the greatest gift that he's ever given, and he gave it for you. If you're a Christian, come on up, grab these elements, and uh, remember the Lord. If you're not a Christian, there's some prayers on the screen, and we invite you. One of the prayers is seeking for truth. Oh, yeah, there won't be. Uh, it, <laughs> in, the, in the bulletin, there's prayers in the bulletin. Uh, and one of those prayers is the seeking of truth. It's, it's, if, you're, if you're trying to figure this out, like, God, I, I have these doubts. I'm wrestling with this. Uh, there's a prayer there that might give you some language to help navigate that, too. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this uh, text, and thank you for Thomas. Thank you for the example uh, that Jesus offers to us of incredible graciousness and kindness, and then at the same time, truth, clarity, that the hope that comes through the confidence of who Jesus is. God, we believe that you've been showing yourself like that to people for the 2,000 years since. 
And many of us in this room have, have experienced that reality of finally seeing the scales coming off of our eyes and seeing your wounds, the wounds of Jesus on our behalf. God, would you give us hearts full of Jesus today, full of the Jesus of the Bible, not some Jesus that we've constructed that makes us comfortable, that agrees with us, that tells us everything's going to be, you know, everything that we believe. No, God, we, we want a Jesus that actually steps on our toes, but God, we need to see him and we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.